Who wrote the book of Matthew? Oh, look at that Jesus juke. What human author penned the book of Matthew from his brain? Jake says Levi. I thought it was the gospel according to Matthew. Who is Levi? Levi is Matthew. Uh, This is one of the 12. This is the disciple referred to in some gospels as Matthew, some as Levi. It's not uncommon for uh, people to go by two different names depending on the context, especially people from a Jewish background. You'd have a Jewish name and you'd have a kind of Greek name. When they were under occupation by the Romans, you didn't want to stand out. Uh, It was also a major part of Roman culture that they would try to assimilate you into their culture. So they would let you keep some levels of autonomy, but they wanted you to be one of them. They wanted you to consider yourself as a Roman or under Roman authority. Uh, it's the, Matthew, if you remember, was the former tax collector. He, uh, that means in order to be a tax collector, you had to speak the language. So one, they had to speak Greek, which is essential for uh, his business dealings with the government. But he also, as a tax collector among the Jews, had to speak Aramaic, because that's what the Jews spoke. And uh, as you know from your own study and reading of the Gospels, tax collectors were not highly regarded or highly respected. It's always funny to us when you come to those verses in the uh, New Testament that say people got mad at Jesus because he dined with sinners and tax collectors. Their own special category of sinners are the tax collectors. Uh, And those guys were frowned upon why. It's not like paying taxes was an unusual thing. The Jews in the Old Testament had taxes. Why were tax collectors so despised in the first century. They did, but that's not, that's not why. They're, they're traitors. They're Jews who were willing to be hired by the Roman government to exact taxes on Jews. And so they were shills for the Roman government, even among their own people. And then because they were able to do this, many unscrupulous tax collectors took advantage of this. They would add a percentage or two to the tax that people owed and put it in their pocket before they took Rome their share. So they were uh, thieves, but they were culturally traitors, which is why that's such a big deal. Uh, But Matthew, Levi, one of the 12, former tax collector, literate in Aramaic, Greek, probably also Hebrew. I'll talk more about that later. How do we know, though, that Matthew was the author of this? Forget the fact that your Bible wrote the gospel according to Matthew on the first page of the book. That's not in any of the original manuscripts. None of the original manuscripts have Matthew's name on it. So how do we know that Matthew wrote the book? Well, the, the way we start is with the internal details. The perspective of the book is from the perspective of Matthew the disciple of Jesus. He speaks in the first person in the book from that perspective. He was present at events that make it clear he has a high level of detail of firsthand accounts. So then we would have suspicions that it was Matthew. The reason we know it's Matthew is because for us to have suspicions 2,000 years later doesn't really tell us a whole lot. But the early church fathers in the second century knew it was Matthew. And every single commentary, so to speak, that they had on these texts, every single copy of this gospel in their care, they wrote that this was from Matthew, who is Levi. And if there was a dispute about it, 
you'd have some variety. You'd have, in the second and third century, you'd have some church fathers say this was Matthew, and some say, well, I'm not so sure, maybe it was Jerome. And you, we, we have that situation with other things, not with this. The testimony is uniform in the early church that this gospel was written by Matthew. So it has that perspective, uh, and there are no outliers in the early copies of this and in the church fathers. Um, and just on the why didn't he put his name on it, it's not that he's trying to hide anything. It's that wasn't a particularly common convention at the time. Uh, the way that you wrote things like this was not normally to put your name on the top and say, this is who I am. The emphasis in Hebrew and Greek writing is on the text more than the author, unless there's a reason to do otherwise. So you get something like Luke, where Luke is telling you flat out, the reason you should consider this account trustworthy is because Luke, who is identifying himself, did the investigative journalism for this purpose, blah, blah, blah. So it's not that they can't do it. It's that it wasn't expected. It wasn't mandatory. Uh, And so it's no surprise there that there's no uh, authorial attribution. But again, it's really early. You're talking about the second century? You're talking about 60 years later, uh, the church fathers all agree. The first century Christians agree this was written by Matthew. Uh, Questions about that? Does Matthew's gospel treat tax collectors the same way? (laughs) I will get to... um, He certainly... um, Save that for when I get there, because there's a nuanced answer. Uh, The date, when was Matthew written? How contemporary is the writing of this gospel to the events that he's writing about? Because we talked before when we talked about the reliability of the gospels, one of the things that makes us feel like the gospels are very believable is how early they are. There was not a lot of time between when these events happened and when they were written down. And that doesn't mean that mistakes couldn't be made. What it means is that if mistakes were made, or more importantly, if a fraud was being perpetrated, there were tons of eyewitnesses, first-hand and second-hand witnesses, to say, you're just making this stuff up. So the date of these books matters. Critical scholarship, academic professors in uh, universities uh, will tell you that the gospel was written between 80 and 100 A.D., Now, again, they're, they're wrong, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But even if they were right, this is pretty early, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is within two generations. So if you think about grandparents that are still living, it's, it's that close from the birth of Christ, not just the teaching ministry and the death of Christ. So that would, be, uh, that would not be a problem if the gospel was written that late. The reasons that they say it was written that late, though, is that they're working backward. The way that they're getting to this date is they're saying, look, um, there's, there's two factors here that are uh, sort of 80, 60, or 70 factors. One of them is what's called Q. Um, we have four Gospels. Three of them we call the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels. The word, we get our word synopsis from it. The word in Greek kind of means as it is, as it was. 
it refers to being from a similar perspective. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even though they're very different in their audiences, their language, the stories themselves are from a very similar perspective. Here's this baby that was born, according to all these prophecies. Here's the life of that man. Then you get John, and John is, whew, in the beginning, whoa, hey, what are we doing here, right? So different perspective. I say John writes in poetry, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke write in prose. Well, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of things in common, a lot of stories in common, events, a lot of uh, teaching directly from Jesus, a lot of um, a lot of phrases that are identical. And so the question is asked, how could they be identical or so similar except that they're copying from one another? So one of them must have come first. And so what the liberal scholars say is Mark came first. Mark is the earliest gospel. And they'll date Mark around AD 60. And they'll say because Mark uh, wrote this stuff, Matthew and Luke copied some identical stuff from it. And uh, therefore, whenever Matthew was written, it has to be after Mark was written. Because Matthew copied, not, not like plagiarized, Matthew got some of his information from the source, which was Mark. So if, if all three books, um, if all three books have something in common, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the same event or the same teaching from Jesus, then what scholars say is that's because it came from Mark and Matthew and Luke copied it. Okay. Well, then, what do you do with the sections where Matthew and Luke have it in common, but it's not in Mark? And they say, well, there must have been another source. We don't have that source, but we'll call it Q, and, uh, which means source in Greek, just for the record. It's, uh, so whenever Q was written, these have to be written after that. Do you see how they're working backwards? Saying, all right, what's an alternative explanation, by the way, to why Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have the same stories, the same teaching, a lot of content overlap? Saw the same things. It really happened. That's an alternative, right? Now, it could have been the case that Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark. That doesn't challenge our faith at all. It's not my belief. But this is one of those things where anybody who's more than 75% sure is certainly wrong. Right? Um, I think Matthew was written first. I think Matthew was written in Hebrew first. I think Matthew was then translated into Greek a little bit after Mark was written. But I think that they're all the same because they're telling about the same events. If Q existed, no problem. Somebody wrote down some other facts about this period of time, and these authors used that to to write their God, it's no problem. Uh, I just don't think we need it. And then I especially don't think we reason the date of Matthew based on that whole thing I just explained being true. We make Matthew so late because, well, we got to fit it in this theory. But there's another reason why liberal scholars make Matthew so late. And it's because of a text in Matthew where Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
that the temple will be destroyed. And so it's obvious that that comment that the temple would be destroyed was made after the temple was actually destroyed. Because otherwise, Jesus would have been predicting the future. And that can't happen. So since the temple was destroyed in AD 70, there's no way Matthew was written before AD 70, because otherwise, Jesus knew the future. Everybody good with that? Right. So this is how we come to AD 80 to 100. Needed still a source. Alive in, oh. Well, especially if you get towards 100. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, oh, that's a great point. So the liberal scholars who say 80 to 100 say, therefore, Matthew could not have been the author, not the disciple Matthew. So they've started with a presupposition. This is the way presuppositions work. Start with a presupposition. I believe, what do they believe? No predictive prophecy. It is not possible that Jesus could have predicted the future. That is their core belief. So from the core belief, they date the book. Has to be after AD 70. Right? And then from their date, they get into the authorship wasn't really Matthew. And from their authorship claim, they get 2nd to 4th century church politics. Why, if it wasn't Matthew, would the 2nd century church fathers have been so insistent that it was? Because if they claim that it's one of the disciples, then the people will believe them and do what they say. And so this entire worldview of the church is a fraud, it is a control and power situation, they were deciding which books they wanted in and out, the church was just making all this up. Everything that exists about Christianity on cable television, you could follow a similar chain where they say it's based on fact. They never get back up to this. It's not based on fact. It's based on a presupposition that you're just taking for granted. So they should say, at the beginning of all those programs, everything we're going to tell you is based on the fundamental principle that the supernatural does not exist. Every fact we're going to give you, every supposition we're going to make, every date that we're going to claim, everything we're going to say in the next hour of this program about the real Jesus is based on the presupposition that the supernatural does not exist. And if they would say that up front, it'd be a lot more honest. Because when, when we're debating people at work or in the marketplace, they want to debate way down here. Well, don't you know in the 4th century they took votes and they voted out the gospel of blah, 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 and they voted in the hoo-hoo just because Peter and blah. Like, yeah, but I don't want to argue about that because that's a bunch of nonsense if you actually believe that Jesus was the Son of God and could tell us the future. All right, so when's the real date? Well... <laughs> 
we reason backward as well because the book doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a date attribution. So what do we re reason backward from? If the author is Levi Matthew, then it was written within the scope of his life. <laughs> he wasn't dead when the book was written. So most conservative scholars would tell you that this book was written around AD 60, 10 years before the destruction of the temple because we don't have any problem with Jesus predicting the future. It would have been, been written later in uh, Matthew's life. And I'll talk more about the, the context of that here in just a second. But it, we have no reason to doubt Matthew wrote it. The only reason you would doubt Matthew wrote it is if you reject that Jesus could tell the future. We don't have to reject that. In fact, we embrace that. And so we don't have any problem. Matthew wrote it, and he had to write it about this point in his life. Questions? Yeah. No. Who wants to answer Nathan's question? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are they all disciples? We just said Matthew was. He's Levi. Who's, who's Mark? Probably John Mark, who's followed uh, all around some, but they, most people think it's the gospel. Look at him, not me. I'm not it. Most people think that Mark was written by, that his source is Peter. That yep. Would be the most John Mark was a guy who worked with the apostles, early church, and probably got all his info from Peter, which is why Mark is so hard on Peter because Peter is so hard on Peter. Uh, and then Luke tells us who he is, that he was not an apostle, that he was an eyewitness, that he was a bystander, so to speak, and he's a historian. And so he goes out and he interviews a bunch of people and he collects all the information from eyewitnesses because there's you can imagine if we're claiming this Jesus guy is raised from the dead, the whole world's talking about it. Whether they think it's true or false, the whole world says did you hear what they're claiming happened in Jerusalem, that this guy was raised from the dead? And so Luke says, let me go write the account of what happened and go get the facts. And we can share that with people so that they'll have an orderly account and they won't have to listen to rumors. Good question. And John is a disciple. All right, Matthew. Purpose, audience. I've said the Gospels have different purposes. And the Gospels have different audiences in mind. But we really have to think about that in two different ways. In one way, all the Gospels have the same purpose, which is to illuminate the truth of God in Jesus Christ. It is to tell the truth to the world about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of all the Gospels. Uh, and so in that sense... Who is the audience, big picture audience, capital A, who's the audience of all four Gospels? It's not, a, not a trick question. I'd say broader than that. World. The world. Whoever believes. That's why we, um, one of the things that the Presbyterian Church was, the Presbyterian denominations coming out of Europe, were based on, was the free offer of the Gospel where there were other denominations and other churches that said, whoa, you know, because the Bible teaches God's sovereignty and election and predestination, well, you can't just offer the gospel to anybody. And we said, no, 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 no. We offer the gospel to everyone. It's up to God who responds. It's not up to us who we offer it to. The gospel goes out into the world. And so that's how Matthew will end, isn't it? 
How, what, how does Matthew end? Therefore, going into all the world, make disciples, teach, baptize. Um, so big picture, capital A audience, whole world. Purpose, illuminate the story of Jesus Christ. But it's also fair to say that each of the four Gospels have a unique purpose to a unique audience. And when we think about getting ready to read the go- any particular Gospel, one of the things we've got to think about is, what is that unique purpose? Because it's going to change the way you read it. When you pick up a new book to read it, Matt recommended that I read such and such a book. I at least want Matt to have told me, what is it? It's a biography. It's a great fiction book. It's historical fiction, right? I, w- I want Matt to have shared with me the, what I'm getting into. So that even when I read page one, I have a clue about how to read this thing. And I look more carefully for the type of writing that's consistent with that thing. So if he tells me I'm reading a biography and the book on page one tells me this incredible story about the person's life, I go, wow, that's a really incredible story. That's, that's amazing. If he tells me it's historical fiction and I read page one and there's an incredible story, I go, oh, I wonder if that really happened. Right? Two very different ways of reading. Uh, level of attention to detail and how critical we'll be about the details. Uh, types of terminology that we're looking for. That stuff changes. So uh, I was at uh, the restaurant I go to in Greenville when I'm there for work the other night. And I was sitting at the bar and uh, catching up with a friend. We talked about the church. And then when he left, uh, a woman comes across the bar. She's probably in her early 70s, maybe. And uh, she sits next to me and she says, hey, I'm sorry to have eavesdropped, but I overheard you talking about the church. And I'm reading this book right now, and I want to know what you think. And uh, the book was... Uh, so, so I'm trying to find a nice way to go, hey, let me recommend a book that's not crazy. Um, but she started talking about the Gospels. And she said, yeah, you know, Matthew was written uh, for the Jews and Luke was written for the Gentiles. And then she said, I don't know who Mark was written for. And I said, well, it's written for people who don't have a lot of time. Mark is written for people who just want to get on with the story, right? Everybody has a, a different audience, lowercase a. They're not saying, don't read this book if you don't fit in the bucket, but they're saying, here's the perspective, the particular audience that I'm thinking about. Um, For Matthew, it is incredibly clear that his audience is Jews, that he is writing from a Jewish perspective to Jewish people. Remember, uh, who remembers what the diaspora is? You young guys, do you know that term, diaspora? It's a weird one. Yeah. Exactly. So the Jews used to have Israel and then split kingdoms. Some people go away. Occupation by Nebuchadnezzar. Some people go away and don't come back. Over time, lots of Jews leave Israel and then don't come back. And uh, especially in the intertestamental period, in between the Old Testament and John the Baptist, you don't have a real nationalistic identity for Israel anymore because you're a conquered people. And so Jews kind of go out. And those Jews who were out there, those Jews who were not in Israel, and specifically not, in, not centering their lives around Jerusalem, those are called the diaspora. 
the scattered. Right? They, they went out. So Matthew's audience is probably them. Matthew's audience is probably the Jews who are not geographically right around where this stuff happened with Jesus. And he is writing to tell them from a Hebrew perspective, connecting Jesus to Hebrew history, here's what happened. Here's what's real. Here's what's true. This is who this man is. Um, And so he addresses uniquely Jewish concerns. I'll talk more about this in a little bit, but the way he writes, the terms that he uses, the stories that he includes, the genealogy that he starts with are addressing Jewish concerns. It's good information for all of us, but a Hebrew would really want to know. These things are pointed at a Jewish hearer or reader. I'm going to read you a quote from Wikipedia. Really? Not a good source for Christian truth. No, uh, but you can tell the person who wrote this particular paragraph is one of the uh, biblical professors in Scotland. He uses all the British spelling for all the OU words, and uh, it's orthodox. So I would guarantee you that someone from the University of Edinburgh wrote this. Unlike Mark, Matthew never bothers to explain Jewish customs, since his intended audience was a Jewish one. Unlike Luke, who traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam, father of the human race, Matthew traces it only to Abraham, father of the Jews. It's only Matthew who refers to a pre-Christian church, ecclesia, an organized group with rules for keeping order. And Matthew suggests that that community was strict in keeping with the Jewish law and that they must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in order to advance. Writing from within a Jewish Christian community, growing increasingly distant from other Jews, that's that diaspora, and becoming increasingly Gentile in its membership and outlook, Matthew put down in his gospel a vision of an assembly, of a church, in which both Jew and Gentile would flourish together. So he's writing toward the diaspora, not exclusively, but toward people who know what it is to be a covenant community. And now their covenant community, because they're not in Jerusalem, is becoming a little less Jerusalem-focused, a little bit Jerusalem only. And these Gentiles are coming in. And one response to these Gentiles coming into their covenant community is, you have to become Jews. And into that audience, Matthew writes, let me show you how all this fits together. And let me show you how God's vision is not for a world where all the Gentiles become Jews, but a world where Jews and Gentiles are the church. And that's Matthew's perspective. Questions about that? I know today's a little boring because we've got to lay all this groundwork before we get to text. All right, hang in there. Literary structure. How is the wor- how's the book organized? This will be fun because it shows you how uh, we all do this in our own Bible study. We get really excited about something that we find, and then we build this entire system around it. Like it's the most important finding. And then you go back in the end and you're like, oh, no, I probably should have just left it with the, oh, that's neat. Uh, does Matthew have a literary structure? How is the book organized? Is there any, is there any, when we say literary structure, we mean beyond chronological order, which is how you would tell a story like this. And remember, first century people are not as concerned with chronological order as we are. So we would say in order to tell the truth about somebody's life, you have to start with their birth, You have to end with their death. And everything you tell in the middle has to be in the order that it occurred. 
uh, first century people would say, you start with their birth, you end with their death, you take a couple of critical events, really key events in their life or ministry that have to be in the right order, and then everything else, you're, oh no, he's dead there. You arrange it thematically, right? You just group it together based on what makes sense, what fits the flow that you're trying to do. And we really don't like this. No, no, no. I need to know what time the next train's coming. You're like, man, you're so obsessed with time. Right? So this is the way first century authors write. When we say literary structure, we're saying besides the timeline. Is there anything about the way this book is organized, any, any structure that the author said, I'm going to write my play in three acts? I'm going to, you understand what I'm saying? Where it's not, it doesn't change whether or not it's true or false. But they are imposing a structure to the benefit of the reader. This will help you read it, or this will make my point more clearly. So B.W. Bacon was a uh, theologian, and he was interested in finding, yeah, his name was Bacon, guys. That's I'm telling you, I knew how to live. Uh, he was interested in finding a structure, and he noticed something. He noticed that, Five times in the Gospel of Matthew, um, Matthew says, when Jesus had said these things. That exact phrase appears five times in the book of Matthew. Um, And then that phrase always comes at the end of a large chunk of teaching. So he starts to see this pattern. Jesus does a big teaching that ends with this, and then there's some narrative. They went here, they went there, blah, 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 blah. Then you get back to another big block of teaching, you have that sentence again, and then you have another block of narrative. And so he looks through the Gospel of Matthew, and he sees this happen five times. Five big chunks of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, the sending out of the Twelve, the Kingdom Parables, Christian community, and Pharisees and eschatology. Five very identifiable, discrete blocks of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, all of which are connected to that phrase. And he says, well, that's it. I found it. I found the literary structure of the book. What must be happening here is that because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, he organizes everything Jesus teaches into what? Five books. Why would you organize everything that Jesus is teaching his people into five books? Because God organized what he taught his people into five books. The Torah, the first, the Pentateuch. Who gave the people of God the Pentateuch, humanly? What human is responsible? Moses. So what must Jesus a new teacher who gives a new teaching, new five books to God's people, what must Matthew be saying Jesus is? The new Moses. Woo, we found our literary structure. This is amazing. Now, again, that's pretty cool. If you think through that, there are five giant blocks of teaching. That's a reasonable point of comparison to have drawn. Matthew does make the point that Jesus is the new Adam, the new Moses, the new Abraham, the new David. Matthew does make the point that Jesus 
fulfills all of these things in the Old Testament, and I'll talk later, Matthew makes the point more than any other that Jesus is all those things in the Old Testament. They're all always about and pointing toward him. What happens, though, is you take a good idea, okay, I should, that five books concept, that's pretty neat, and then you make that the dominant structure of the book, and you say, all right, this is exactly how it's structured, and the problem is um, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually fit. There are lots of times in the so-called narrative sections where Jesus does a little bit of teaching, and there are lots of times in the so-called teaching sections where there's a little bit of narrative. It's not as clean cut as that structure would uh, lead you to believe. Um, also, so that's one problem with this. It's just if you, if you press it too far, it breaks down. But I think there's a bigger problem with this structure. Uh, if it's teaching one, narrative, teaching two, narrative, teaching three, narrative, teaching four, narrative, teaching five, uh, uh, epilogue. What's the most important part of the book of Matthew? Well, in this structure, it's the five books that Jesus hands down, right? It's what the whole structure is built around is that the five books, the teaching from Jesus' mouth, is the most important part of the book of Matthew. Okay, but really, what's the most important part of the book of Matthew? The epilogue. <laughs> because this is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So it's neat, but it, it's not thematically true. It buries the lead, as they would say in newspaper print. That's a phrase, guys. Bury the lead means the first sentence of everything you write should be the most important sentence in the whole document. You write a paper, you write a sermon, it should be, it should capture what all of this is going to be about. So newspaper articles, that's called the lead, the first sentence. What am I reading an article about? Well, if you hide the most important sentence in a part where people aren't really paying attention to, you buried the lead. And I think that's, in this model, what you end up doing. Um, so I'm not a... I think that structure, literary structure, is interesting. I'm always fascinated by stuff like that. But I don't think that's the actual structure of this book. But I spent that much time on it for a reason, because I wanted you to see the fact that it's there. As you read other Bible books, you'll find things like this that are there. And when you read commentaries or books about a book, you read a book about James, you read a book about Jonah, those structures do exist. The temptation, then, is to make your interpretive framework that structure. That structure is what matters and what dominates, and that's why it was written this way. The structure is useful, but it is not the interpretive framework. The interpretive framework of Matthew is not a literary structure, but a dramatic structure. That is the story of Matthew. The events that are recorded, that is what shapes the book. That is how Matthew actually divided his book into sections. And that structure supports the most important part of the book. It doesn't bury it. And I'll show you how. Um, Chapter markers, by the way, remember, those are not original. So it's not like when 
Matthew wrote the gospel, it had chapter numbers and verse numbers in it. We added those uh, a lot later. So you can't look at chapter numbers to say, well, this will teach me the structure of the book. No, it, it doesn't. Um, what you have to look at is the flow of the story to determine the through line. So we do this a lot in our book club, right? When uh, uh, Matt was, he just led uh, Rocket Men, the book we read about Apollo 8. And when you get ready to lead a book like that, you have to think, all right, we, we, we're not going to go page by page. We're not going to go chapter by chapter. What's the structure that I'm going to use to talk about this book? Did the author himself use a structure? I can use that one. If the author himself didn't, then I have to come up with my own. And so for, uh, for Rocket Men, Matt used people, technology, and mission, right? You might have had better acronyms. Man, machine, and mission. See, he did. He had three M's. Uh, and that's a great way. That's a structure, right? Okay. I could see how the author goes back and forth between talking about the men involved, talking about the machines involved, and talking about the mission that they're on. And he, he goes back and forth, but those three buckets are always there. So what is Matthew's theme? Well, dramatically, it's exactly the same as Mark and Luke's. All three of the synoptic gospels have exactly the same dramatic structure. They can be divided easily into three sections. Jesus is, there's always the Galilee section. The Gospels all start with Jesus in and around Galilee. Uh, It's the background information. It's how we learn who he is. And Jesus is always doing things in Galilee. The, the, The structure of the story is Galilean, so to speak. But from the moment the book begins, there's always this illusion, this kind of pointing forward, this out there to Jerusalem. It's always clear from the moment you meet Jesus that Jerusalem is going to be a factor in this story at some point. And so Jerusalem is out there geographically. Galilee's one place. Jerusalem's over there. Jerusalem's also out there on a timeline. Galilee is now. Jerusalem is some, something about the future. But you have that the whole time. Um, and so this, this timeline and drama is sort of the, the preliminary information. And then there will be a, a moment uh, of going to Jerusalem. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then there's Jerusalem. So all three Gospels. What happens before Jesus makes the decision to go? We know he has to. We're learning about him. What Jesus says and does once that bit is flipped, and now the march to Jerusalem begins, and then what actually happens in and after Jerusalem. That builds tension throughout the book. And it's so unfortunate for us sometimes that we know how the story ends because we don't feel that tension at all when you read the gospel of matthew you do not feel the way a first century or second century reader would feel who doesn't know how this ends that reader feels that tension of he's got to go to jerusalem i mean that he's got to go to jerusalem He's he's the king of the Jews. This is the Messiah. He's got to go to Jerusalem. That's why when we get to Palm Sunday, that's such a big deal. 
they think this is it. This is the moment that history has been crying out for for thousands of years. That's how confused they were about Jesus. Which they thought the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the culmination of all of God's promises. This is our king riding into the city to conquer it and to be our ruler. Yes, we win. But we don't feel that tension of, oh, we got to get there. We got to get there. Which also means, by the way, when they get there and they have their triumphal Palm Sunday excitement and then they have the worst week in the history of their lives, we don't feel the despair that they feel. Because all we feel is, Man, it's really a shame that Jesus had to suffer and was crucified. That's awful. But we don't, so we go from a neutral position to, oh man, this crucifixion's really bad stuff. They didn't go from a neutral position. They went from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the pit in a week. In a week. Our conquering ruler Messiah is here to, they killed him and we lost. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Uh, the dramatic structure of that and the way they would have felt. So the, the key phrase is actually in the Gospels. Um, remember I said in the other one, it's when Jesus had finished saying these things. But it's actually from, this is exactly how it says it in Matthew because it's a little different. From that time, Jesus began. That's the transitional phrase in the Gospels. From that time, something happened that now, what? We got a break with what went before, and now we're in a new part of the story. So that phrase comes up twice, Matthew 4.17 and Matthew 16.21, and those mark the huge shifts in the narrative. What came before that all fit together, but then from that time, Jesus began, now we're here. And then later, from that time, Jesus began, and now we're here. So in Matthew, for example, you go from uh, the beginning of the book to chapter 4, like I said, with just who is he? Who is Jesus? So the first four chapters of Matthew are who is Jesus, this person? Give us the genealogy, give us his background, give us his parents, give us his upbringing, explain to us who this man is. And then when you get to chapter 4, there's the switch And starting in 417 and going all the way through chapter 16, we get into the, well, what did he say? So this is who is he? What did he say? Which also includes what did he do? Because what he did validated what he said. Uh, And then that phrase comes up again. How did it end? You can tweak it, the words I used, a little bit each gospel, depending on what their narrative purpose is. But that's the structure of the synoptic gospels. Who is he? And then something happens. And then from that moment on, we're focused on, well, what did he say? What are his claims? What did he teach? And then something happens. And then from that moment on, it's, well, how did it end? And this transition into the last phase of how did it end is the same in all three Gospels. That transition is the march to Jerusalem. The same thing begins, we get all this tension. How's Jesus going to get to Jerusalem? When's Jesus going to go to Jerusalem? Why hasn't he left for Jerusalem? 
what happens in all three Gospels, that the moment it happens, Jesus suddenly says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Peter's confession. It's the pure declaration of who Jesus is. And we know that Peter's going to have some problems really believing that that's true, but it's the moment where for the split second, the world gets it. The world gets who he is. Peter says, you are the Christ. Whoa, this, this, you're it. All that history, who is he made sense? Everything you're saying, it's all coming together. We see it clearly now for a few minutes. This is who you are. And only once the world knows this is who Jesus is, then he'll go to Jerusalem. And in theory, that's because then when he gets to Jerusalem, his people would know what to expect of him. But he tells his disciples a hundred times, you guys are going to be really disappointed when you see how this ends. (laughs) You really, really have the wrong ideas about what's going to happen next. So the linchpin of Jesus' march to Jerusalem, which is his march to death, Uh, is Peter's confession and that declaration of who he is. Uh, Questions about that structure? Um, So I've heard a number of people say, and and some helpful things, if we take a big, broad theme, it just needs, it's not, so uh, a lot of people say Matthew is Jesus as the new Moses leading the rest of us. We should kind of read through that lens, but it would still need to fit in this kind of stuff. There's not a conflict there. There's a thing you want to try. That's right. Um, there's a, a good way to read the Bible in general is what's called a, a, this is a technical term, a biblical theological way of reading the Bible, which is that you pick one of these themes like Jake is describing and you say, I'm going to read this book with that theme in mind. So I'm going to read Matthew, and even though you can read Matthew focusing on a lot of different things going on, I'm going to read Matthew this time thinking about Jesus as the leader of God's people into the promised land. And then you really pick up on the new Moses stuff. You really pick on the Jesus goes into the desert and out of Egypt I called my son. And you really pick up on that stuff. And all that stuff is true, and that's a really helpful exercise. There's nothing wrong with doing that. What is the dominant, the center of the circle, big picture structure of the gospel of Matthew, it's this. Because this is the dominant center of the circle, big picture structure of all the synoptic gospels. Because it's it's the story of Jesus as, as it, it's the core of Jesus' story. Who is he? Fully human. Who is he? God incarnate. Why? Death, resurrection, ascension, gathering his people together. Um, So as long as you never lose sight of this, then all that other stuff is really helpful. And that's the point I was trying to make somewhat clumsily uh, earlier about the other structure, which I like, the five books thing. It's just, I know you guys buy books and you read books that people write about, you know, kind of Bible study kind of books. I'm going to read about this book, or you've got study notes in Bibles, or you've got... And it's just one thing to always keep one one eye open toward is 
There's some really exciting stuff like that. These biblical, it's, again, it's called biblical theological. There's some really exciting BT stuff in the Bible. But sometimes when people think about it or write books about it, they get so wrapped up in that, they bury the lead. They miss the part that matters most. So Jesus could be a new Moses and not save me from my sins because Moses didn't. And so don't get so excited on those sorts of things that we forget the, the center of the circle, the biggest picture. All right, thanks, we're done.